victory. This reading from Scripture, from the book of Acts, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We're in the middle of a larger narrative in the book of Acts that attends to a burgeoning controversy and challenge and debate within the early church about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they went on their way by the church, and as they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. There had been much debate Then Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. This concludes the reading of God's word. Amen. It stand, please, as we sing this song. Well, good morning and greetings from uh, Abilene, Texas, where it's raining. Uh, it looks like it may be not raining at the moment. I'm looking here, but it, uh, this morning it was raining in Tuscola, it was raining in Winters, it was raining in, ba- it was really raining in Ballinger, and it was raining here when I got here. So uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, to celebrate that rain and uh, a lot of joy to see uh, the earth be replenished that way. Probably is keeping hunters out of the field today, which may mean that's why we have such a great crowd here this morning. I don't know. But uh, no, it's, it's good to be here. Well, it is uh, hunting season, 
started, rifle season started yesterday. I got a few moments out uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, found a hog to shoot, but that was all that was uh, near uh, my line of sight. Uh, but what I really like about this season, hunting season, is actually Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving's just a few weeks away, and that uh, brings all kinds of fun uh, traditions, mostly around food, and that's, uh, I'm all in on that. Uh, and I, you, your family, I know, I'm sure, has uh, different tra- uh, traditions that you practice, certain foods that you have. Uh, I know for us, um, uh, you may... Uh, you may deep fat fry your turkey in the backyard. I, I smoke one over a, in a green egg over wood smoke, and it comes out so wonderfully. And we have uh, cornbread dressing with uh, venison sausage worked into it. And, and then there's, there's grandma's, uh, my, my grandmother's uh, jello salad uh, that uh, she hasn't been with us since ni- she passed away in 1992, but her jello salad's on the table year after year. Uh, you, you've got those traditions, right? Things that you do that make uh, your family, it's just part of who you are as a family, that give shape and identity to your family. But then things come along that start messing with that. And uh, we've got a, an adopted daughter in, in Abilene, or we, we call her our adopted daughter. Uh, she and our number one child, a daughter, these two girls, I say girls, women, have been plotting all fall. They've been on a pumpkin kick, pipe pumpkin spice lattes, la-da-da-da-da. And uh, so th- they've been trying all kinds of stuff. I've had to eat pumpkin soup this fall, pumpkin soup. Then they really did something sacrilegious. They made pumpkin chili, which it just, I don't know where pumpkin and chili, that's just not cool in my book. You know, pumpkin pie, I can eat my weight in pumpkin pie, but pumpkin chili. And, and that, but here's what they're wanting to do for, uh, for Thanksgiving Day. They want to have stuffed pumpkin medley. What's that? Well, they, they're going to take a pumpkin, and they're going to clean it all out, and they're going to put all kinds of other vegetables down in there, onions and all kinds of stuff, and then they're going to cook the whole pumpkin in the, in the oven and then set that out on the table for Thanksgiving Day. They tried it the other day. I was out of town. They said it was wonderful. They say we've got to have it. Got to have it for Thanksgiving Day. Bah, humbug. <laughs> but they've got Vicky on their side now, so I, I don't know. I, I will, let me, I'll, I'll let you know after Thanksgiving how this is going to come out. We've been having some dissension and debate at the Reed household about what we're going to do on Thanksgiving Day, messing up tran, uh, traditions. Well, I, I, I say all that sort of confessionally because... When we get to Luke or Acts 15, and uh, we uh, hear what's going on in Acts 15, uh, it makes Thanksgiving Day look like small potatoes. This is not World Series. This is uh, baseball. This is a peewee. Uh, what I was talking about is peewee league. This is World Series stuff in Acts 15. We've got a big debate going on because the church, rooted in the Jewish community, bought in hook, line, and sinker with the tradition. And the tradition is that as a Jew, all men are circumcised. There's certain dietary restrictions. No eating wild hog that you shot yesterday. 
Uh, there are all kinds of practices about uh, life and ethics and morals and social life. The Jewish people in, uh, uh, had a very high view of marriage. All of this was working itself out in the early church. But then here come these Gentiles. You read the book of Acts, they start popping up along the way. And the Gentile people come from a very different cultural uh, world and worldview. A different kind of sociology around them all together. They didn't worry about their dietary rest, uh, restrictions. They didn't eat kosher food. Their understandings of marriage and uh, sexual ethics was very different from the Jews. And chiefly, if you, weren't, uh, if you weren't a Jew, you weren't circumcised, who would, who would go for that? We have a big debate going on as these Christians hear about the gospel and start coming to faith and God starting to work with them. And the church is having a hard time with all of this. And for, for, for good reason, for good reason. You see, things like circumcision is a non-negotiable if you're a part of the people of God. Uh, Genesis 17 makes it pretty clear. My covenant in your flesh is an ever, did you hear that, in your flesh part? In your flesh is an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been cut in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. Thus says the word of God. This is pretty non-negotiable. And yet... You've read your New Testament too. Here we come thousands of years later. Here comes Paul saying, For in Jesus Christ there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Or that circumcision is a matter of the heart. This is a big deal that the church is messing with in the middle of the first century in Jerusalem. It's a bigger deal than anything you or I have had to wrestle with. It's a big thing happening. And I can just imagine... Folks gathering at church in Jerusalem on a Sunday morning before church, drinking their coffee out in the foyer, having visits in different places around the building. Can you imagine the kinds of conversation that's going on around there? Haven't you heard? They're letting Gentiles in the church now, says somebody. Well, I don't see what's so radical about that. We all have to deal with things as they come along. The first person says, I don't think you understand. They're letting Gentiles in without being circumcised. To top it all off, they expect us to eat with these people at table. How can we keep uh, eat with Gentiles who always are unclean? This is a problem. We've got a mess. And who's to blame for it? They start looking around. You can see it all popping up in various parts of the congregation. There is the, the small group that meets out in West Jerusalem. They start popping off about this. They say, look, in our small group, we've been studying Ezra. And Ezra's really clear about this business. You shall cut yourself off from the foreigner, says Ezra. And if you're married to a foreigner, you cut her off too. Then there's the women's study group. They've been meeting on Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock there in Jerusalem. Right? Well, one of those, some of the ladies are talking that are in the lady study group. They say, well, you know, we've been studying Ruth. And Ruth, now, I think Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. She was the grandmother of David and, of course, Jesus. Don't you think it'd be okay to let the Gentiles in? Well, then there's that men's breakfast group that meets over at the egg and, egg and bacon place. I'm sure there's one here in San Angelo somewhere. 
And they say, well, now, we've been talking about this breakfast every Wednesday morning. And uh, we've been studying Deuteronomy. And the Deuteronomy says that the Jews are the chosen people. They are the chosen. We alone are the chosen ones, says the men. We're the ones. And another person says, look, I've been reading Amos. And Amos says, among you and you alone have I chosen among all the earth. Talking about the Jews. But then somebody else pipes up, says, well, wait a minute. Just not long ago, we heard the story about Jonah. And the book of Jonah talks about uh, God calling Jonah to go speak to the Ninevites, who are not Jews. And, and they repented when they got the preaching from God. They repented, and God accepted their repentance. Oh, I'm telling you, this Jerusalem church is having fusses and fights and dissension and debate all over the place. From the foyer to the parking lot, from the basketball court, all the way downtown, they're having debate and dissension about what are we going to do about these Gentiles? Well, and it isn't hard to hear other things coming along with it, like, you know, who are we to blame for this? There's somebody who started this mess. Let's just hang, hang that. Let's, let's find who it is that started this. Who, who are we to blame? Some people said, well, it's Stephen. We haven't been looking at Stephen in, on Sunday mornings when I've come to preach. But you find Stephen over there in chapter 7. This guy, he was appointed to be a servant in the church. He was appointed to wait on tables. And then he got all uppity. And about chapter 7 of the book of Acts, he goes to preaching. Now, that no good will come when people start to thinking they can preach. And that's what Stephen did. He got himself stoned. Remember that? He got himself stoned, but he started this controversy, I think. Somebody says, no, I don't think it was him to blame. I think it's somebody else. I think it's Philip. I think it's Philip. He ran off up there to Samaria and started preaching to those Samaritans. And the next thing you know, it's like a camel underneath, his nose underneath the tent. Let those Samaritans in. That's what started all this. Somebody says, no, I think Peter's to blame. Peter was down there in Joppa, and he went to having visions. And the next thing you know, he's up there in Caesarea having Caesar salad with some Italians. Up there with that Roman Italian. And the next thing you know, we've got this big mess. Gentiles coming into the church. What are we going to do about that? Somebody said, no, it was Paul. Paul's the one we need to blame for all this. He's all over the countryside preaching the gospel, letting Gentile people come in. He should know better than that. What a mess. Somebody else said, I think it's Barnabas. Barnabas is always so nice, being nice and encouraging everybody. Oh, there goes the encourager, Barnabas. Bless his little pea-picking heart. If he'd just be not so nice to everybody, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. You see, everybody's looking for somebody to blame for the controversy. For the, to, who, who started this anyway? Who's trying to prove what around here? Well, you know what? You know what? You know who's really to blame? It's right here. It's right here in the book of Acts chapter 15. It's really easy to see who, whose fault it is for this big controversy in the church in Jerusalem. You know whose fault it is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's showing up in the lives of these Gentiles, popping out here and there. That's what, Paul, what Luke is telling us as he records all of this. He's reminding us 
That whenever God is on the move, doing his good work, new things happen, and people have learned to adjust to it, and work with it, and wrestle with it. The newness of what was happening in this early church in Jerusalem is nothing less than God working out the outworkings of the power of the gospel to bring newness in new places. That's who's to blame. And the church is wrestling with it mightily. It's interesting to me how they wrestle with it. I think it's helpful to us to think about it. You see, what they did is they, is they found themselves at loggerheads with one another as they began to listen closely to the witness of testimonies. That this new thing is happening, this new thing is happening, and they begin to listen to people tell about what that new thing is. And so they hear Peter speak about his experience of seeing people come to faith who are Gentiles. And then Paul gives testimony and Barnabas give testimony to what they see happening in the lives of people when the gospel shows up and makes a difference. They listen closely to that. And then the second thing that happens in this tension and time of discernment and stress and strain as the church is trying to sort out what God is up to among us, it it comes in the verses that follow from what I read a moment ago when James, who seems to be the chairman of the body of leaders there, gets up and says, look, let's listen to scripture one more time. And he reads here from Amos and says, After this I will return, I will rebuild the dwelling of of David which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called, thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. What the early church did was they listened closely to the ways in which God was breaking into their world. These new ideas, these new things that were happening, these new people coming to faith, this new expression of of God's activity, they looked at it closely to see whether or not it was of God, and then they looked at Scripture and they saw that it correlated with one another. And that's why James said and got up that day and says, we're going to embrace these new Gentiles and we're not going to make them be circumcised. We're not going to place that burden on them. Church, what I want to say to you today is that God is always breaking in to our world. He is always seeking to do a new thing. It's constant. The reason why we often don't see it, I think, I'm making a confession for me and maybe for you as well, is that we're just not paying attention. We'd rather not see. We're too preoccupied with our own stuff. We'd rather have what we've always had at Thanksgiving dinner than try something new. You see, the possibility is that God is at work and our task is to listen to the testimony of what is happening and test it against Scripture and see if not God, see whether or not God is at work. As you know, I travel a lot working with churches. Um, this past week, actually, I wasn't here. A week ago, I was in central Texas, 
and was with the church doing something called appreciative inquiry. I spent uh, a, a, a Friday night and all day sa- Saturday listening to the stories of that church, just talking to groups of people within the congregation. Uh, it makes for a long day and a half. But it was, it's joyful to hear people tell the stories of how uh, they've grown and matured in the life of, that, of a congregation. I will never forget this one story that came out of an 80-some-odd-year-old woman, a sister in that church, with her white hair and her blue sparkling eyes. When I asked, what, where have you been, what has been the place, where's the place that you've been growing in this church? And she goes, in Sunday school. I said, Sunday school. She said, well, yeah, Sunday school. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I've been going to Sunday school all my life, and I know the saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I decided some 30 years ago that I was not going to, that was not going to be me. I said, okay. So I said, what do you mean Sunday school? She said, well, you know, I figure that Sunday school is a place where I'm supposed to be learning new stuff. Now, I know I've been coming to Sunday school since I was a little girl, she said, in a little country church where we just had one class for all the kids. And now I'm in this big church, and I've been here a long, long time, but when I go to Sunday school, I'm assuming that there's something new for me to learn. And you know what? There almost always is. And I've been a part, she said, of this church a long time, and there are a lot of things going on, but you know what? I think that Sunday school is the best place in the world to find out new things about the new things that God wants to do. And I thought, wow. She understands something about what it means to pay attention to God. To pay attention to God in the life and our living and our daily living and the things that happen at home and in church and our work and our world, and to pay attention to Scripture that these two things sort of rest together. This past week, I was in Nashville several days for meetings. I had a chance to be with an old friend, a good friend, a friend whose life had gotten turned upside down, mostly because of his own negligence, adultery, about broke up his marriage, about broke up some other marriages, and uh, it had been a little while since I'd seen him. We sit down and had coffee at a Starbucks. No, a Panera, excuse me. I had somebody else at Starbucks, uh, at Panera. And uh, as we sat there, he said, you know, um, the last year has been incredibly hard, but I can also attest that it has been incredibly powerful. He told about how his marriage was now stronger than it was 18 months ago. And how other people who'd been affected by that had not been easy for anybody, but there were good things to report. There were good things to report about his teenage children and a daughter who's in college. And all through all of that, his constant refrain was that God continues to amaze me with his powerful, the powerful ways in which he creates new opportunities, new life for me and the people around me. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does, and it shouldn't surprise us that it stirs up things for us to wrestle with and opportunities for us to grow and places for us to pay attention to in ways that we've not perhaps done before. And that's why I want to suggest to you, as this quote suggests, that we've got to pay attention 
to what God is doing and not think that it's always going to be the same old, same O. Let me me read this quote to you. Um, I think it's a powerful quote. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you surprisingly who said it. When Christians meet, she writes, their purpose is not or should not be to ascertain what is the mind of the majority, but what is in the mind of the Holy Spirit, which will likely be something quite different. Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of England, somewhat 25 years ago. She's quite a theologian, actually, in that statement. It's something that we have to remember It's not about thinking that there is this side or that side, that it's the West Jerusalem small group or the Berean ladies' women's Bible study. No, what we're paying attention to is where is God at in all of this? And what is he up to? And that's why I'm here to confess to you that come Thanksgiving Day, there probably is going to be stuffed pumpkin medley on the table And I want to be the first one to dig into it. Why? Because God keeps doing new things. That's what keeps lives, spiritual lives and families and churches alive and vibrant is when we are willing to let God do his work of bringing newness as the gospel is heard and reheard again and again. And the good news here this morning as we close, is that if your life needs newness, if your life, if you're longing for a new beginning, a new start, there is no better place to do that than by listening more deeply and receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we can help you with that this morning, won't you come now to the front as we stand and sing?